Oh, amen. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. Glad you're with us. Today we're going to be in the book of Job. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can flip or tap your way to Job chapters 3 and 4. If you don't have the copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll have those verses up on the screen for you. And we'd love to give you a Bible. But let's be real. Uh, it's 2020. I don't know what you're going to do with a paper Bible. Just pull out your smartphone right now. Download a Bible app. Uh, it'll happen by the end of this sentence. No? Okay. It'll happen really, really quick. Go, and if you will, download Version. It's an app that a lot of us use here at Hope Church. You can sign into, jump in on some of the things that we're doing. Be a really great way to involve you into some of the ways that we read the Bible. Hope Church is not um, some sort of secretive organization. All we have is the Bible. We believe the Bible, we teach the Bible, and if you want to know what we think, well, you can just go to the Bible. So as we're reading Job's 3 and 4, and we're thinking about some of the things that go on in this gigantic book, uh, feel free to go home and read about it, think about it, come with your questions, and let's make sure that we're gaining the right understanding from Scripture. Because this, this, uh, this is pretty heavy. If you know about the book of Job, if you were here last week... It's a story of a man that loses everything. That's just the premise. Then you have chapter after chapter after chapter. Of pulling that apart and of opening up this guy's heart. To just ask the question, what do we do with suffering? How are we to understand the really hard stuff. Just as a brief recap, Job was the greatest guy in the East, had a huge family, had untold wealth, was respected beyond anybody else. And in a moment, gone. And there's these four waves of attack where he loses all of this kind of animal and then he loses all of that kind of animal then he loses all of this kind of animal and then he loses his kids in one shot. And two of them had very direct causes. It was these marauding, marauding tribes that came and stole this stuff. But two of those waves seemed to be from God himself. One was fire falling from heaven. That was a great wind that knocked the house down and killed all of his children. And we're let in. I mean, the Bible opens up heaven for us to show us what's going on. We talked about this last week, so if you want to dive in, you can go to our website and you listen to it. But what happened was God was directing the suffering around Job to his own ends. God knew exactly what he wanted to do with Job's suffering. And he made some beautiful, some amazing things out of it. But of course, for Job, he doesn't see that, he doesn't understand that. He's just suffering. And yet... We have in Scripture his reaction as he loses everything. He tears his cloak, puts dirt on his head. These are ways in the ancient Near East that would, they would show their suffering. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. There you have it. He reacts. He does this perfect reaction. It's very human. He's mourning. He's not some tin man. It doesn't just bounce off him. 
and yet he has worship. He still believes God is God. He's still going to approve God as God and the right that God has to do what he will with his world. And so in that way, he honors God. And if we remember what's going on in this kind of heavenly courtroom, God is being challenged by the enemy, by Satan. And Satan's saying, people only love you because you give them stuff. Yeah, Job, okay, he's following you, but who wouldn't? Look at his wealth. Look at his kids. So God says, all right, take it away. And still Job worships. There's a second round where God allows the enemy to take away Job's health and sores break out from his scalp all the way down to the soles of his feet. He loses all respect from the community. He loses all ability to even be around other people. He sits in an ash heap, scraping his sores. And yet, still, he does not sin by reacting against God. Now, it doesn't mean that he's approving of what happened. Clearly not. Job isn't excited these things happened. Clearly not. But he does in some way accept that God is still good, that God is still God. And if these things happen to me, then these things happen to me. Now, that moment of suffering, that moment of triumphant worship could end the book. You could have God in that moment show up and say to Job, you did it. Willy Wonka, right? Get out of here. You're not going to win, Charlie Bucket. You lose. Everybody loses. And then he gives back the everlasting gobstopper. You're with me. I know you've seen it a million times. (laughs) And then Gene Wilder pulls off his hat and he's so happy. You win, Charlie. You get everything. That could happen, right? God could say, you worship. Here's your kids back. (laughs) He's God. Why not? Because we know that's not what suffering's like. Suffering happens, and in that moment, that shock. Yeah, it's the worst thing. But the poison doesn't just come out right then. It lingers. And that suffering and that pain doesn't stop. It lingers. And there's people in this room, and there's people at Hope Church, who have tremendous emotional scarring gaping, emotional wounds. And they don't just turn off. So this book, beginning with this triumph and Satan's dismissed, the whole rest of this book is just Job. It's Job and his friends. It's Job and God. It's just Job. The whole rest of this book is understanding what your heart does in suffering. And we have to understand this. We've got to understand it because the way that you react to suffering is totally a product of what you believe. Job's beliefs. We need to to have Job's beliefs. They're ripping him apart, but they're also keeping him in some way stable. And today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to think about some of the different ways that you can approach suffering. Some of the different stories that the, the culture teaches us as ways to deal with suffering, belief systems that you adopt, and then suffering comes, and what happens next? But let's begin with Job, because in Job's moment of feeling all this incredible pain, almost annihilated, ripped apart, absolute tragedy, worships God in the midst of it, boom. Then it's like the next week. 
And he's sitting there and he's scratching his wounds. And he begins to curse the day he was born. Job chapter 3, look at verses 3 and 4. Let the day perish on which I was born. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Skip down to verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who longs for death, but it does not come, and digs for it more than for hidden treasures? Longs for death like a man searching for hidden treasures. Verse 24, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, what I dread befalls me. What's this guy feeling? Tim Keller, one of the guys, talks about these verses, says, Job doesn't turn away from God or contemplate suicide, but he also struggles enormously with what he feels like, what feels like grave injustice. A life of goodness can make affliction even harder for a person to take since it makes it all seem so completely senseless and unfair. Do you see what's happening? He's not able to totally accept that God's just doing something mysterious. And he's not able to just curse God and die. He can't go forward. He can't go backward. He can't stay where he is. So he reacts by just cursing the day he was born. What if I just wasn't born? And that's when his friends show up. And his friends uh, come and they sit with him for a week in silence and they're weeping as they see what was the great man and he's now in the ashes like this and they're, they're seeing what's going on. But as Job begins this tirade against the day of his birth and he tends to open up in his cursing of his own life, then they start to talk. And what we get from chapter 4 all the way to chapter like 31, long passage of the book, is these three cycles where Job has these back and forth with each of the three friends. You have this Eliaphaz, you have Bildad, and you have Zophar. Again, good luck with the names. But these individuals who accuse Job, try to fix Job, try to get in there and fix his worldview, because the worldview, again, is going to... So what's going to get squeezed when you go through suffering? And it's what's going to produce what you do in suffering? And I, I mean, I, let's be hard on these guys because what they said was so awful. But let's not forget how hard it is to talk to somebody in suffering. I want to help you with your worldview, but I also want us to be better at that moment. What do you say? What do you say at the funeral home? What do you say the next week when you meet up for coffee? What do you say? There's a billion dumb things you can say. You've thought of all of those. What's the right thing you say? What's the sweet thing you say? What's the thing that will actually help? It's not easy. Please don't just pretend like something didn't happen. That's the other thing. That's kind of the easy thing. Let's just talk about sports. 
But if we really are going to minister to one another, how do we do it? What's our common language here? Job is reacting against God. He's raging against God. And and as we go through the book, we're going to see there's all kinds of places where he, he doesn't accuse God, but he gets real close. And let's just think about that. Is it okay for you to scream at God like this? In a true sense, no. Think about who God is for a moment. We need to see this if we're going to understand our worldview. God is the holy king of all. He's the holy king of kings. His throne room has majesty unspeakable. His presence melts those who come before him in an unworthy way. And you and I are going to walk into there and just start shaking our finger at this God? Of course that's sin. And yet, holy God has also called himself our Father. He's also sought to meet us and to bring us into his presence. And so while, of course, we don't want to disrespect God, we don't want to curse God or dishonor God, we do understand that he wants us, if we're feeling these things, to bring them out to him. We don't want to add hypocrisy or lies to our rebellious heart. And think about what that's like in parenting. If you've got multiple kids, you've got multiple different points, right? These kids react in different ways to the discipline that you give them. And when you give one discipline, they're going to react brazenly. They just come at you with emotion. They come at you shaking fingers and telling you exactly what they think about what you think about what they did. What do you do with that kid? Well, you got a lot there, but at least you know what you're dealing with. What's a little harder is you have the kid that just accepts that punishment and they nod and they go about their obedience and they feel the same way as the other kid. They just don't say it. They act like everything's okay, but on the inside, they're getting even worse. They're getting even darker. They're getting even further away from you. So neither of these are great situations, but I know which one I'd rather be. So as Job begins this conversation with God, and as his friends start to speak into it, I want us to think about the options that we have with suffering, the ones that we're presented with. There's some that are just options. They're not great options, but they're just options. One of them are fatalistic cultures, like the Vikings. Do you see Thor Ragnarok? Ragnarok. It comes from Norse mythology. The idea is that there would be a time when it's just all over. The lights go out, and all of creation is just unmade. And that, like, absolute abysmal end to all things means that the only good we have now is to be a noble warrior. I don't know how many Vikings you know. That's probably not a big one. There's also dualistic cultures. They're ones that believe that God is great and the enemies of God are great. And they're warring and they're fighting and they're pushing back and forth. And sometimes the the tug of rope goes this way and sometimes the tug of rope goes this way. And we know which one team we want to win and which team we want to be on. So we, we hope and we work. There's some Eastern cultures, self-transcendent cultures. These are cultures that have really done, they built themselves on helping us to understand our suffering, express that suffering. A guy named G.K. Chesterton went further than a lot of people, a smarter guy than me, in understanding some of these different Eastern cultures, and he saw the the appeal or the attraction of a lot of the self-transcendence versus Christianity. He even said it this way, the spiritual and intellectual man sees it as a sort of dilemma. A very hard and terrible choice between these two things. But ultimately, he becomes a Christian. And the reason that he does is because in comparing these two, 
He's starting to see that a lot of these Eastern sort of self-transcendent views on dealing with suffering seek to just turn the volume down. Problem is unfulfilled desire. So if we can reduce your desire, we reduce your suffering. That works as a math problem, but if you reduce your desire, not only do you reduce your suffering, but you also turn the volume down on all kinds of other things. Again, Chesterton, the ideal being, absolute liberation, the the ideal for uh, some of these Eastern religions, absolute liberation from all desire or effort, anything that human beings commonly call hope. In that sense, the philosophy would only mean the abandonment of arms. Now, he's talking about wars, because wars would, the argument being that wars would cease if we had more people that had this sort of self-transcendent view. I mean, the abandonment of arms because it would mean the abandonment of almost everything. It would certainly tell the warrior that uh, disappointment awaited him when he became the conqueror, and that his war was not worth winning. Good thing. But it would also presumably tell the lover that his love was not worth winning and that the rose would wither like the laurel. We turn down desire, we're turning down all kinds of different things. Other things that we might not want to let go of. Now, some of these different worldviews, they have strength to them. They have strength because they give you some things while you're suffering. In the first place, they give you um, a heads up. Suffering is not a surprise. You're waiting for it, you're watching for it, you're expecting it. In the second place... It can help. You you have in your worldview this idea that suffering is going to somehow move you towards that goal that you're working towards. Helping you to become more noble. Helping you to detach yourself further. Helping you to hope in and fight for the good. In the third place, these worldviews, they help you in achieving the ends of suffering by telling you that it's on you to pick yourself up and work. To tell yourself something in your suffering that's going to move you through it. At least they had that going for them. What happens mostly in our culture is we kind of have two different things. And I'm going to say that both of them are wrong. Or at least they're not very adequate for helping you with suffering. On the one side is a modern sort of materialistic view. The idea is that the only things that are are the things that are physical. There is no God. There is no afterlife. Do what you will. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That view is harsh. Because it doesn't prepare you for suffering. It has no place for suffering. The idea is, we just are what we are. We're part of nature, and nature is red in tooth and claw. Yeah, suffering's going to happen, and when it does, I don't know. Try to avoid it. You're just a bug in the bathtub. And you're spinning and spinning and spinning as the water goes out, until eventually, bloop. Nobody cares, and you're gone. That one's bleak. But I think a lot of people are kind of led that way. The other half of our culture, definitely in our city, all of us, and I I think this is every human heart, has a moralistic understanding. And we're going to dive into there a little bit further because that's what Job's friends express. By moralistic, I mean that they say, if God is good, and he is, and he's in control of everything, and he is, and bad things happen to you, and they obviously have, It's a punishment. You must have done something. If good things are happening to you, it's a reward. You must have done something. But if bad things are happening to you, it's a punishment because you must have done something. 
And that's what Job's friends come up and say. Job curses the day of his birth, and he gives in this cursing the opportunity for these guys to finally respond. They've been sitting with him and weeping with him for seven days. He curses, and they're like, okay, wait a minute now. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? Verse 7, remember, who, what, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? See what they're saying? Job, if you do well, you'll be rewarded. If you don't, you'll be punished. The fact that you're punished means there's something you're not telling us, man. Because you got punished in a big way. So you must be doing something secretive that none of us knew about. But I want to know. And it's not flat. They have this idea. I mean, everybody sins and then God disciplines and reproves. And if you receive that, receive that discipline and move forward through it, that all these good things are going to happen. But what they do when they say that is they say that all suffering is because you have sinned. They're saying specifically, if you're suffering, you did something. In this book, the whole of the book of Job is saying to you that that is wrong. Release yourself. The Bible is saying that if you're suffering, it is not necessarily because you have sinned against God in a specific way. It's not. That's wrong. The whole premise of the book of Job, and it's gigantic. If you go home today and try and read and think like, okay, well, we're going to get to 32 next week. So I'm going to try and read chapters 3 through 31. Good luck. It's long. But if you sit down to read it, you're going to see, because it's the whole point of this gigantic book, is that Job was a blameless guy. God allowed unspeakable suffering because he wants to show something else. He's got other reasons. What these guys do when they say that God only ever acts because of how you've acted is they make God into a force, like gravity. What happens if you drop something? I'm not really going to drop my iPad. I can't replace it. But what happens? You drop it. What happens? It falls. Come on, it's gravity. It's a force. You don't have an option. I don't have an option. You can get out of Earth's gravity and just float away if you want to, I guess. But realistically, if you're here, you've got gravity. It's just a force. That's what they're saying God is. He's just a force. Not that He's dumb, but certainly that He's not active. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that God is just a force. The Bible teaches that God is a person. He is one who can be known, who can be experienced. And understanding that means that you can unlock, you can get past this idea of just God as this moralistic judge. What happens if he's only a judge? There's a guy famously named Martin Luther who helped to do all kinds of good stuff and some crazy stuff. And he was known for lots of stuff. But one of them is that he was super, super smart. And specifically, he had a really brilliant legal mind, meaning that if he hadn't become a monk, he could have been one of the leading kind of legal experts in all of Europe. But instead, because of lightning and some different stuff, he decides to become a monk. And as a monk, he applies his grand legal expertise to accusing himself of all the ways he's broken God's law. Think about what that would feel like. He knows, because he's smarter than everybody else, exactly the ways he's broken God's law, and he has. The Bible's clear that we're sinners. He knows, though, that he is a sinner, and he's finding all the time new and more devious ways in which his heart is rebelling against God. 
So he goes into the confessional. At the time, that's what they were doing. He would go into this confessional. He would confess to this other guy for just hours and hours and hours because he was both the brilliant um, prosecution and the poor uh, defendant. Eventually, the guy he was confessing to was just like, Stop! And Luther kind of moves past it, and that's part of his story, and I'd love to tell you more about it. But in that time, when all God was, was this judgmental force, somebody says, Brother Luther, do you love God? And he said, love God? You ask me if I love God? I hate God. I see Christ as a consuming judge who is simply looking at me to evaluate me and to visit affliction upon me. Is that what God is? Job's friends were wrong about God, but they were wrong about themselves. They were delusional if they thought that they were somehow more righteous than Job because they weren't. Your understanding of God is going to affect how you react to suffering. Is this idea of a judge your idea of God? Because, like many things, it's not wrong because of what it says. It's wrong because it's incomplete. God is this kind of judge. He does uphold the moral rightness of the universe. It's based on who he is. And yet the Bible goes even further. He is not merely a judge, but he's also loving and merciful. Look what the scriptures say. If you get past what Jesus did and get into the book of Romans... So the four Gospels that talk about who Jesus is, and then you get into the New Testament, which reflects on the Old Testament, how Jesus did what he did, and how the Old Testament teaches us about what Jesus did, what he did. And then it reflects, looking back on all of it. And in Romans, this guy Paul, probably heard of him, says in verse 26 of chapter 3, it, we'll get to what that is, was to show Christ's righteousness, God's righteousness at the present time, so that... God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's the it? Because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a universe that really does have right and wrong, really does have love, really does have wickedness. Not because we want wickedness, but because we want bad things to really be bad. We do want a, a universe with volume. But we want a universe with volume that we can somehow live in. We can somehow exist in, even though we're sinners. We need a just universe. We want that. You should long for that. But we also need a justifier. We need somebody to run us through some kind of process so that we can exist in that universe. Who is that? What is it? Verse 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not allowed into his just presence just because you're just. You're not. Everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified. Made to be just. By his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do on the cross? perfect God becoming a man living a perfect life then takes upon himself our sin in that moment of the cross that's what happens God puts upon him the sin of humanity and then pours out upon him the wrath that God has for all of that sin 
Christ, drinking to the dregs, hell itself, so that you and I can be justified by faith in Jesus, just receiving Him as a gift. By faith in Jesus, we can be justified before God. Is that what you believe? Let me tell you, if you do believe that, then when the suffering comes, when they spin the little piece and the vice comes and doesn't stop and it crushes you, you won't have the additional suffering of wondering why God. You can wonder that. But you can also accept that He loves you. That He really does love you. You're not like Luther and you hate Him because you assume He hates you. But you can look to the cross and know without doubt that He loves you. And that He's with you. It's almost exclusively what we're going to talk about next week. That He's with you. He's with us in the fire. Jesus goes to the cross so that whatever suffering you're going through and you tell Him you're going through, He can go, I get that. And you say, explain. And He says, no. But I, I get it. Is that what you have? Is that who you know? At Hope, we exist to help you know Him. We want you to take that next step. Get closer to knowing who Jesus is. Experiencing that love and experiencing that foundation that if you build your house on it, when the storms come and the winds blow, that house that you have doesn't collapse. Let us help you do that. Next steps include community group. Coming back next week. we only got two more weeks where we're going to think about Job. Come back for those two weeks. Finish out a whole series. Jump with the community group. Go to God time. On the website, you click on God time, it just gives you a one-day, two-paragraph, couple of verses to just think a little bit more. We just want to invite you any way we can to spend time in the Scriptures and understand them. To get to know this God and receive this salvation yourself. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would encourage people to know you. Man, Hope Church is a bunch of broken people. We really are. We're people that are broken because we're sinful, but we're also people who have been broken by suffering. There's a lot of wounded people, Lord. And so we're not going to express who you are perfectly, but we can express your forgiveness perfectly because you are a great God to forgive people like us. I pray that you would help people to understand that goodness and to understand that greatness of your love and of your forgiveness. And that as you bring us to yourself and as you slowly curate this community built on that cornerstone of Christ, we would be people who suffer well. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.